Let's go ahead and if you stand with me, let's read the passage. We'll be in John chapter 7. It'll be on the screen um, for you. We'll be reading from the ESV, English Standard Version. So let's do, we'll do it as, as we normally do here. Uh, chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, So as we go into this passage, uh, it's not a statement or title. It's more of a question for a title. Is there more? Is there more? There's got to be more. Uh, let's, Let's pray. Father, we recognize that because of Jesus, Lord, we have life. Thank you for your word, Lord, that nourishes us, Lord God. Um, Thank you, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would have your way. You do best at glorifying Jesus more than we ever could. And so, Lord, we ask, I say, you would think with my mind, speak with my, my mouth, Lord. I give strength to my throat. Father, may our hearts um, be uh, soft and fertile for your word. Um, guard any ears from anything that wouldn't be directly from you. May everything I would say be something that would honor Christ. Father, we're excited about the fact that in this world there is more. So we ask, is there more, Lord? Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. You can be seated. So if you ever got to that point, and this is kind of on the question, where you're in life and you look at something around you, you experience something, and you start asking, is there more? Is there more to this? Mrs. Ambrose, seeing her son, burying her son at the age of 15, asking, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. Something's missing him. It's kind of like on the, um, for the uh, sake of illustration, have you ever got home and you just, you're extremely thirsty and you just start drinking a whole lot of water? And you're like, that's not satisfying me. And so you look in the refrigerator, what do I have? What do I have? Sometimes for me, it's like I got to get a Gatorade or something else. I got to get some of my wife's sweet tea. I need something to satisfy because as I'm drinking, I'm getting bloated and nothing's satisfying me. And so similar, what happens is that not just do we have these physical experiences of of whether it be pain, hurt, disappointment, disillusionment, the, the natural things, but Jesus also steps into a scene and he points out this is reality in the spiritual world as well. Spiritually, we ask the question, is there more? And that works in concert and it has impact upon the natural of what we see and hear with our ears and the eyes. And so the first point is we go into John 37. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day. So this feast, what is this feast? To start off with, we want to see the first point. We're going to look at four different points here that, look, that begin to get at is there more. And the first one here is Jesus enters our thirsty world. Okay, Jesus enters our thirsty world. Contextually, he enters into this feast. John chapter 7, in the beginning, we see that this feast is a feast of the booths. It's also called the Feast of the Tabernacles, and it's also called the Feast of Ingatherings. 
So any of those are referencing this feast. And so within this feast, you have kind of three different things working together in concert here. That they're thinking about the feast was to help them look back to remember the Lord's provision. It was to celebrate his present provision. And it was to look forward to the future of anticipation. All right, so there's those three areas. The first one is in the feast. Here's, here's uh, in looking back to remember, here's what, I'm going to read this. I'm going to teach for a minute to set context for what we need to know about uh, Jesus stepping on the scene. So here's what this feast is. Um, every year, each family constructed its own temporary shelter of branches to live in for the period of the feast. Now, the feast was eight days, right? Sabbath on both ends. The eighth was a convocation or a Sabbath, all right? A time of no work, you rest. It's holy unto the Lord, right? And so you have eight days. And so for the duration of that fast, that's what would happen is you have temporary shelters. This typified the years of wandering in the desert before the people entered the promised land. The feast was joyful in character and was a time of thanksgiving for the harvest that marked the transition from the nomadic poverty to a stable affluence in their land. All right, so for those of you who know, and maybe some may not be familiar, this harkens back to the, the, the journey where in Exodus, the, the people of Israel are in bondage in Egypt, and the Lord hears their cry and he delivers them. And as they're journeying, he gave this promise 400 years before that, uh, to Abraham. He says, I will deal, your people will be there, but I will deliver them and bring them to the promised land. So they, they, they get out, they're delivered by the Lord. He, they go on this journey now to the promised land. As they're going in that journey, they're in a dry land. Now, we don't know that today because we can go, even if we have no other source of water, we can go into a public facility and drink out of a faucet. So we don't have a conception of the dry, arid land in our context that they do. But th this was a dry, arid land, and so they were journeying, right, and, and looking for provision. And so theologically, what they would do is they would have to remember because they would live in booths, temporary shelters, as they were in this journey. Now, theologically, this reminded them of the temporary shelters of the desert wandering, right, what we just talked about. Thus, the feast was not simply to praise God for the harvest, but to study the desert period and its meaning. So it's not just to celebrate the present, but saying, what, is it, what was going on during the, har dur during the wandering? Because it says, make sure that as you're reliving this and living in booths, right, that you're remembering and learning what happened in these years of wandering. And so it was a reminder for them to look back and see something like in Exodus chapter 17. As they're wandering, they see a rock and they're starting to, well, they don't see a rock, but God ends up using it. But they're wandering and they're thirsty in this dry land. They're extremely thirsty uh, and, and they get to the point where they're kind of saying, well, God, we saw you part the sea. I mean, who of us has seen a big old sea part like that? I mean, none of us. So you see that, they're wandering, but then they're like, nah, God, you can't, I, I don't believe that you could provide in that way. So oftentimes we see learning from this reality about in our life, God may provide, but then when it gets tough and we don't have exactly with what we think we want or we thought what we had was better for a time, right, then all of a sudden we say, God, you ain't gonna provide for me. And it's like we're testing the Lord. I mean, that's what, that was going on. We're testing him like, no, you can't do this. Try to like, Almost in a sense, I've done it. Like try, it's trying to manipulate God like, you ain't going to do it. Like, I dare you. I mean, that, that's what's going on. And so he says, remember that process. And then remember that 
in the midst of your wiling out and your complaining, God had Moses, because Moses is like, okay, Lord, you got to do something right now because these people are about to kill me. I mean, they, they frustrated, right? So he says, okay, Moses, go tap a rock. And as Moses strikes the rock, out comes water for the people. I mean, water does not come out of rock. So it's almost like, hearken back, remember how I took something that would never provide water in the midst of a dry land and watch how I provide through it. Remember that. Do not forget. So we, they start there and then you have, uh, so, so what's going on is as they're, as they're remembering in these feasts, at the same time, you have a ceremony going on in the temple. And in this ceremony, what happens is that they would go down to, there would be water running underneath the mountain, which the temple is on. So they'd go and they'd grab this water, and, the, and the, the priest would walk up, and people would be rallied around him. They'd go up to the altar, and what they would do is they would pour the water from that river that ran underneath, the Pool of Siloam. They would pour that water in a, in a, in a cup. They'd have a golden pitcher. They'd pour it in and it would, until it overflowed. Okay, I'm, I'm going to get there. This You're like, what the heck does this mean, Pastor Tommy? I don't know. We're getting there. We're getting there. So they would, they would pour this, and, uh, and as they did that, they were also to keep in mind God's present provision. So he had just provided in the promised land. They're still wilding out, but he provided for them in the promised land. And they're in gathering, right? The feast of the in gathering, too. They're gathering all the crops, all the produce, and then now, as they're doing this, they're remembering how God provided and that they needed the Lord in order to have rain for the next season. And so because in Deuteronomy 28 says, if you obey God in that time, um, blessings for obedience, I'll give rain on your land. If you disobey, then I'm going to cut you off and cut the rain off and you're going to suffer drought. We'll see how Jesus fulfills that. I mean, it's a whole different thing, but... That's what they're thinking and saying, well, we have to keep the Feast of the Booths, according to Zechariah 14. You have to keep the Feast of the Booths, and when you do, I'll provide rain in abundance. So they're celebrating the present, but there's also that sense of, but there's got to be something else for God to provide because I'm dry. Yeah, yeah, I'm setting this up. I'm getting, to, I'm getting there in a second. So we have to understand that. So while this was an atmosphere of joyous celebration, in that joy, they were also aware of their dryness in their wilderness. And so see, in the midst of that, there's a dryness in life that they were experiencing, even though they were remembering. So the question is, we can't understand that type of dryness today because we got water all over. And I think that's part of where it's like they knew, they had an area that says, if we don't thirst, we'll die. Today, where is our wilderness? Where is your wilderness? It may not be with physical water, but where is the wilderness? Where you walk around and you say, why did that happen? There's got to be more. It might be a death in your family that happened unexpectedly. It might be, man, I'm, I'm disillusioned with the fact that I'm in a relationship, but it didn't work out. It may be, there's a whole list of things. It might be, you might experience a miscarriage in the last month, and you haven't told anybody, but you're wrestling with the Lord. Right? It could be a whole slew of things. It could be, Lord, I've tried to get a job for five to six different you know, jobs in a row. Every single one has said no. Where is your wilderness? It might be I moved to a new city, and God, I, you're not providing the community. I, I, I don't know what to do. Where, where is your wilderness? 
Where is that dry ground? Because the beautiful thing uh, is that in the midst of that dry ground in the wilderness, Jesus enters in into the dry ground. Jesus enters into our wilderness. And as he enters into our wilderness, he enters with this context. It's in the context of people who opposed him. Like the, the popularity of Jesus' ministry at this point is no longer popular. Like the, if I, the, the sexiness of an appeal of his ministry is not there. From this point on in the Gospel of John, it's people oppose him, want to kill him, wondering if he's really the Messiah. You have all these questions, and some people end up believing. And so the good news is that Jesus enters into our brokenness. So think about that area of brokenness that's in your life right now. Where is it? Where is that area? Jesus enters into that. Think about that. He doesn't want you to avoid it. He is pursuing you and saying, let me know where that is because as I come, I enter into that. He doesn't enter into a fixed context. He enters into the brokenness of the situation to fulfill something. So that's where, and, and this, this has, this has um, implications as well for how we minister. When you minister, ministry is not out of, of, it's not out of can I seek comfort and security. But we will be going into people's lives that are hurt, that are messy, that are painful. If you've been in a relationship that betrayal happens, right, where you get and someone turns their back on you, like stuff happens and it hurts. If you are going to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and love him, which we're all called to do, it gets messy. And some of us right now, a wilderness is, man, this person I'm trying to love and pour into is not listening to me. And, and are we trying to manipulate a situation or are we recognizing it for what it is? It's a wilderness. It's a dry area in our life. And so here's, here's a beautiful thing. As they did, the, reflected on the past, thought about the, the present, celebrated the present, they also looked towards the future. Now here's where it gets, where it gets crazy. Um, why did they do this water ceremony? Uh, because what they would do with the water ceremony is they pour, it would overflow, symbolic. Go to Ezekiel 47. Go there real quick. I got to do that fast. Ezekiel 47. I'm just going to read that. Um, Ezekiel is being showed by the Lord what is happening and looking towards the future. And this, this is what they have in their mind as they're doing the water ceremony. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the side of the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Then he goes on and says, the water got deeper and deeper and deeper. Then he led me back to the bank of the river, verse 7. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the side, on one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. Catch this. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Fresh water mixed with salt water, it gets salty. This water is pushing salt water and making it fresh. Amen. Then, 
When the river flows, uh, and, and verse 9, and wherever the river goes, this fresh river, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And then it goes in verse 10, fishermen will love it. Lots of fish. Verse 11, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. Don't forget that. It's key. They'll be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So in this way, you, the river here is flowing from the picture here of what it's going to be, right? Because they're looking, they're also called to look forward and anticipate. This river is flowing underneath the mountain, right? From the very throne of God, it gets deeper and deeper. It pushes back the salt. It gives life to everything it touches. The trees are bearing fruit. Like, life is happening the way God intended it to happen. And, and redemption and restoration is happening. I mean, and, and so fish are happening. There's, there's life. It's, it's vital. It's, it's thriving. I mean, that's what we use a lot for the, for the stuff. It's thriving, right? So, but not only that. So they had this in their mind. They got the pitcher. They poured on, overflow, saying, God, we are not just trusting you to provide rain for now, but we're, we're looking towards this day when this will happen because it was dry. They still are looking looking for this. And check this out. Go to Isaiah. Here's what they were looking for. Isaiah chapter 11. And this is foundational for as we, as we move forward. We got to hit this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, this is key, or, deci or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Go down to verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. All right, it's building. You can see that. Verse 12, or 11, I'm sorry. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from different places. A lot of names there. He will extend his hand. And so, in other words, there's a second exodus that they're hoping for. There's a second one. And here's what happens in that day. Then, as we go down, uh, the nations will be drawn. Victory will be seen. Exodus will happen. And the Lord will bring uh, his people, right? He'll call his people. Verse, chapter 12, verse 1. You will say, in that day, they're looking forward to it. This is what they're thinking in that ceremony. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. 
Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. They're looking forward. This is what they said. Verse 3. When they had the ceremony and they were drawing the water and pouring it in, here's what they said. They chanted this as they were coming up the altar. They said, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy, you will dwell waters. You will draw these from the well of salvation. This right here, this, this well of salvation that in this day in chapter 12 is ushered in through the Messiah. They're anticipating that God will send one who will save his people that will, that will see the reality of the rivers of God will be flowing and bringing life. The reality of there will be one who will come and they could say, you are my salvation. I will draw from you. They're anticipating that. Their ceremony, remind, it was supposed to remind them of that. In the midst of that, chapter 7, going back. On this last day of the feast, the great day, check this, Jesus stood up and cried out. You get this? In the midst of Ezekiel 47 in their mind, in the midst of Isaiah 11 and 12, Jesus stands up and cries out. Get it? What are they thinking? Jesus stands up and cries out. And here's what, I can imagine what they're thinking. Remember that rock? From which your thirsty ancestors drank in the wilderness, that water didn't change their hearts, and they still died. Remember the prophecy in Ezekiel 47 about the water running from the temple of God and pushing back the salt water and bringing life to everything around it? Remember the eschatological hope that you recite in Isaiah 12 about drawing from the wells of salvation? Remember that? He says, I am. I am. Think about that. Chapter 8, he has the encounter, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. I mean, we have a hard time because I think we don't, we don't understand the depths of how creation happened and the fall happened, and, and we're, not, we're not spiritually thirsty. We live in a spiritually dry land, and it has been on my heart and grieving me. At Temple Lone, one of the one of the schools there, I'm not going to say which one it is, one of the schools has taken a secular humanistic approach to a system of thought that has always been spiritual. And so there's not only do that, but we, there's so much more. There's so much more. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, yes, there's so much more. You're doing this, but it's pointing to something. And see, Jesus, in this, in this idea of uh, chapter 7, where it says, stood up and cried out, John, the author, is very deliberately wanted everyone in that gathering to hear what he was saying. It's not like, yo, this is kind of cool. I might have something to have. He stands up. He says, you. I mean, in Philly, we go across the street, down the neighborhood, you. Like, that's what we do. Jesus did that. He wanted everyone to listen because he's very deliberate. It's almost as if like John is pointing back. You can imagine him thinking, and the spirit is, is working in him. He says, you know what? This probably is kind of like when the father said at the baptism of Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him in the transfiguration. Listen, like, there's these moments where it's listen to him. And so in the dry land... 
Will you listen to the voice of Jesus? In your dry land, that dryness, that, that hard area of life, the disappointment, will you listen to Jesus? He's the one right there. And he comes in, not just our context of brokenness, but then he speaks his word. And I think here's where he speaks into it. Here's what he says. Verse 37. If anyone thirsts, I'm going to stop there. If anyone thirsts, why does he say that? It makes sense in the context, but it is, if anyone, if anyone thirsts, it's a general call to all the people. If anyone thirsts, he appeals to the deepest yearning of the natural life and brings it to a spiritual reality. Jesus has a tendency to do that. You might have a, something natural that, that goes on, and you're like, oh, why is this happening? But Jesus will surface stuff that he's like, I want to deal with that. So there's a tendency, he knows how to do that. In fact, he does that in John chapter 4, and this is salt water, fresh water. John 4 says this, 13 and 14. Jesus said to this woman, the woman at the well, who he's in discussion with, everyone who drinks of this water, referring to the natural water that she was drawing, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Welling up to eternal life. So Jesus makes a distinction saying, you know what? There's water, that's salt water. He even leaves that in Ezekiel 47. Not all the water is going to be fresh. There's going to be some marshes, some dirty stuff, and some salt water. And so he, he, he gives that illustration, there's that water, and then he says, but you know what? I, can, I will give you a different water. I'm going to give you a different water. And that water that I'll give you, he says in chapter 6, you will no longer thirst if you believe in him. But then he says, that will well up within you to a spring of salvation. That's crazy when they're, they're at 12, they're reciting, we will draw deeply from the wells of salvation. Jesus says, I'm it. Draw from me. Draw from me. And so that's where it's this idea of when, I don't know if y'all ever drank, if you drank salt water before, whether it be in the ocean where you didn't want to drink it, but the wave hit you. Uh, or if you, if you drink salt water, the interesting thing about salt water, you could drink it all that you want. You drink, you drink, you drink. And what happens is the salt makes you more thirsty. So you're drinking the very thing that is going to continue to increase your thirst and you'll become bloated. You become bloated and that's often what happens is that we this old water we drink we drink i gotta get this it's gonna satisfy it's gonna satisfy no 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 no. you're getting but why am i getting all full and i don't feel good and it, it hurts and i feel guilty how does this happen and, and you keep going at it and then jesus is like come on i'm entering into that area and i'm going to speak to it with wisdom and then now i'm telling you if you thirst so where do you thirst today where do we thirst? Because not all the thirsts were quenched. Many there didn't believe. And saying, I want to continue to do it. I want to do what I do. And so where, what are your salt waters today? What are your salt waters? How are you dealing with your thirst? Your salt water might be sexual addiction. It might be alcoholism. 
And it might be religious duty and preoccupations. It might have been something that was inflicted to you uh, and, and, and a hurt, a pain, a sin, and it's a dry area, and you're scared to death to tell anybody. And you don't want Jesus. Jesus, don't go there. I don't want you to go there. It hurts. It's a wound. And that happens so often. And so Jesus begins to say, okay, now, now that we're seeing this idea of uh, where do you thirst? Like, wait, where are the pains? He starts there. Where, where are the pains? Then he says, now here's the thing. Here's what I want you to do. Do you keep going? He says, let him come to me, in verse 37, and drink. He doesn't invite you to say, yeah, go over there. You ever had that at, at, at school or your work where you're like, hey, I have a question. They're like, oh, yeah, go to that person. Or you, you call on the phone, and the per- <laughs> you're asking, hey, I need, I need to talk with this. I need to fix this bill. And they're like, okay, i got to transfer this department. And you're waiting. i got to transfer this department. Like, Jesus doesn't do that. But he says, you know what? Come to me and drink. Yeah. Come to me and drink. He's already stood up and said, I am. I'm this, all these things you're thinking about. Come to me and drink. And see, when Jesus says, let him come to me, it, it harkens back to um, in, the, in the patriarchs in, in, in Genesis with, with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The way God showed himself to them was through El Shaddai. He revealed himself as El Shaddai, which is God Almighty and the one who satisfies the one who satisfies. And so here Jesus stands up and he says, I will satisfy you. You may not know, even know right now what satisfaction is, but I will satisfy you. I am El Shaddai. I am the one who invites you to this. And so some may believe and some do not in this context. And even here, we might be wrestling with stuff. Some of y'all may be like, I don't know about that Jesus. Like, I, I think I'm, I'm just going to try to fill it with salt water and stay busy with my life and have no spiritual understanding. I'm just going to get good grades. I'm going to get a good I'm gonna get education. Others might be, I'm just going to be on the block. I'm cool here. I'm good just, just staying here. I got it made. And the Lord to every single area saying, there is a thirst in your soul. Let me in. Let me deal with it. And he knows how to do it. Uh, and so sometimes we have a, different t- a difficult time coming to him due to a variety of circumstances. So he might be at the point where it's like, dang, like, I got an area that I just want to deal with. And I, I just, I can't believe that God is good. Therefore, I can't let him in. I want you to know that Jesus that we talk about is the one who can quench your, your thirst. He's the one who comes in and does it. I want you to know, and, and beware, the enemy loves to have a heyday. When we're in those moments of dealing, do I, do I let the thirst come up? Do I talk about it? He loves to come and say, mm, like in Genesis 3, God's holding back from you. He doesn't have the best in store. He's going to judge you. He's going to condemn you. When you live in unrepentant sin and you're a believer, then you will start to feel guilt because you're not believing that Jesus is a source of forgiveness, of satisfaction, and he calls you, stop running. The enemy loves to keep you away out of fellowship with the Lord. Stop running. Come. Come to me. Find out how I can satisfy you in the midst of that salt stuff that you've been trying to find in. Come to me, he says. And that can, you can take that further about, God, how could you allow my, my baby to die? How could you lie this miscarriage? How could you lie a 15-year-old son to die? How can you lie? Lord, 
I had this day set out this way, and I get up, and I wake up sick. I wake up, and one of the babies is sick. Now we got to rearrange the whole schedule. I mean, it's small things like that to the large things of death. And sometimes that throws us into a circle of disillusionment. And we're like, God, and, and God is inviting, saying, I can quench your thirst. It may not make sense to you right now, but I'm the one who's painting the magnificent portrait that the cross begins to help re-stitch and bring it all together. And you don't, may not see it all right now, but I need you to believe because I can and will satisfy your deepest longings. But you need to see where the salt water is and beware of that. And he says, not only come to me, the one who fulfills it, the one who is good, the one who offers salvation and life and forgiveness and wholeness, but then he says, and drink. And drink. Many times we like to drink. I know in our neighborhood there's a lot of, I mean, yeah, a lot of partying going on. If you're a college student, the temptation's going to be there. And it's like, well, let me drink and drink and drink. Well, oftentimes it's like, well, why am I drinking? I mean, why do you get drunk? Why do you get drunk in anything? It doesn't have to be just alcohol. It could be with work. And all these things become idols because you're trying to search for something. And Jesus says, you know what? Why don't you all come? Why don't you come? Why don't you try me? Try me a little bit. Try me. And he says right here, there's a thirst that is quenched only at salvation. There's a thirst that is only quenched. Because when you don't see it in Christ, you'll find it other places. And as you're trying to find it, it'll, it'll have physical influences. Because it directs your life. And so the water that Jesus comes, see, it, it, it becomes in the believers, we talked about in John 4, a spring of water welling up into eternal life. It's not dead water that says, okay, now it's here. Now, like the deist would say, I create, God created, then he went far, and we have to try to rationalize in a humanistic, secular humanistic perspective and try to figure it out all, all on our own. He says, no, no, here's the thing, is that it's a spring of living water. It's not a one and done, dip out, I'm out. It is, it's a spring of living water. What does a spring do? Flows. It doesn't stop. That's the life of a believer. There's so much more because what Christ offers is a continual thing. That's essential for discipleship. Amen. It is essential for discipleship. And so one commentator put it this way. I love this. He says, it is to drink is to receive into the soul what serves to refresh, strengthen, and nourish it unto life eternal. You see, because here's the thing, the water is symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit. Throughout Scripture, there's a whole bunch of passages that we could systemically go through, but for the sake of that and time, there is, the water is symbolic of the Holy Spirit who identifies the believer with the richness of Christ as seen as we read in verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This, this as we prepare for verse 38, this, this, this symbolic water is symbolic of the Holy Spirit that was to be given to the disciples upon Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Okay, so you have this sense of all of this symbolic stuff 
if your religious, spiritual, or secular journey never ends at Jesus the Christ, you will never experience eternal life and salvation, which is as water is to the dry, parched land. Our salvation is like that water that's saying, yo, I need quenching. Our salvation is like that. I'm drinking on salt water. I'm bloated. I'm trapped in sin. I don't know what to do. And then the water pours forth and salvation pours forth. And what we see, just like the rock was struck, guess who else is struck in Isaiah 53, 4? Jesus is struck by the Father. And as he dies, he takes the wrath of God. He takes our condemnation. He takes all of this. And then what does he do? He pours out the Spirit. If we stop at the rock, which they were doing this ceremony, Jesus says, don't stop there. Your journey has to end at Christ being salvation or else you will never be satisfied. You will never be satisfied. You will always be drinking and never be satisfied. And for the last one, in verse 38, so we have Jesus enters our brokenness in a dry land. Jesus, then after he enters, he speaks to these areas, right? And then he begins to say, I alone am the one who quenches this. Now the last one, he says, Jesus provides lasting satisfaction for the believer. Lasting satisfaction. Verse 38, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, in this belief here, sometimes today, um, we could say, I believe in something. It's like, a, it's like an illustration we use in evangelism. There's this guy who had a tightrope across the Niagara Falls. Right? And he would carry this uh, wheelbarrow, psh, psh, carrying it across. He'd be walking across, and he'd do it. Everybody like, yeah, that's tight, that's tight. Right? Cool, you could do it, right? He's, so he asked, hey, how many of you believe that I can walk this across? All of them believed. Like, oh, of course, we just saw it. Now he says, here's the thing. I need a volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> None of them raised their hands. <laughs> But because they didn't know his character, he wasn't trustworthy for one, so they didn't entrust their lives. So that belief was not belief. And so sometimes what happens is that a cultural belief or a cultural quote-unquote Christian, because if it's a cultural Christian, there's no belief in Christ, there's no living water. So you're not really a cultural Christian, you're just a cultural churchgoer. I mean, that hurts, but that's real. So now, now, the, now the thing is, as we look at that, Jesus says, now, I'm calling you to believe in me. This promise right here that I'm talking about, it's only found through Jesus Christ. It's only found through him. He says, whoever believes in me, out of his belly, his heart, the core of who he is, will flow streams, rivers of living water. So it's reserved for the believer. And while everybody's searching for experience today and pragmatism, does it work? Does it not work? I'll go with the thing that works. Like Jesus is like, yo, salt water might work for a minute, but it won't last according to God's definition. And our practical experience is not going to last. And so the scripture then says, the Holy Spirit is this river of living water. And what he does is that he brings satisfaction that bears fruit for the glory of God. So just like that river, watch this, would flow 
in Ezekiel 47, and out of it would bring life, fruitfulness. Jesus says, when you're full of me, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, he says, you will bear fruit. And our fruitful lives then will put on display a picture of the coming consumed kingdom by our lives bearing this fruit. And in bearing fruit, guess what else? You're going to be satisfied. Because John, Psalm 16, 11 says, at your presence is the fullness of joy. Think about the spirit of living. God lives in us if we're believers. The presence of God. It doesn't mean we don't go through hard times, but this has ramifications for thriving in very hellacious times. You're going to get times in your life where you're disillusioned. We're going to get times in our life where, man, I forgot to do that. Like that really was a value for my wife and I forgot to do it. You're going to get times when you're going to lose a loved one unexpectedly. And it doesn't take away the grief, right? But the reality is, is Jesus says, if you live life on the ebbs and flows and you drink from only circumstances and the ebbs and flows, you will always be searching for more. He says, I want you in the midst of those dry places, come to me and drink, because I will satisfy you. This is a spirit-filled life of the believer. Clarify theologically, baptism of the Spirit happens in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, the moment you receive Christ. You're sealed with the Spirit, identified as a child of God, to share in the riches and the glory of Christ. Right? The filling of the Spirit, as Ephesians 5, 18 says, is an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing thing. And so when we sin, the Lord calls us, okay, you feel convicted. Instead, as a believer, we're unbelievers are searching out salt water and saying, trust Jesus, right? Believers, if we turn, right, and, and from the Lord and we go here, then we get convicted by the Spirit of God, which is good. Because we're going in a place of salt water. And so as we go there, if we keep going that direction, then ultimately we might start feeling guilt. And you start believing the lies of the evil one. You get this? You track it? But then he says, but you know what? The minute that I convict you, just believe the gospel, turn back to me, and say, don't feast on these other things because they ain't going to satisfy you. And that doesn't bring glory to the Lord because one day we will see it in Revelation 20 where all this will be consumed and the river of God will be flowing from the throne of God and we will be fully redeemed. But we can be snapshots of this now. And that's the invitation. Is there so much more if we're just settling for comfort in ministry and we want to live the American dream? There's so much more. It doesn't make it easier, but Jesus gives us the strength to walk through and he gives us relief. And when the world sees us worshiping in pain, like Miss Ambrose did when she walked down the, the, the aisle yesterday and she said, thank you, Jesus, trust Jesus, trust Jesus, trust Jesus. Her 15-year-old son had just died. And she said, God, this is hard, but I trust you. And he, she's telling her friends, trust Jesus today. Trust Jesus today. Trust Jesus today because you don't know what's later. The world needs this. We need this. We need to let the Spirit of God flow so deep that we're a church that exemplifies the glory of Jesus. We exemplify his glory. And that's how you thrive even when times get tough. And so here's, in conclusion, there's three different people that, that you might identify with now. One is the cultural Christian, as we talked about. 
Maybe you're living the life of a cultural person, who, a cultural churchgoer, which is, which is often no different than a functional atheist. You live your life as if God has no bearing on it. You, today, Jesus is calling you to come to him for true satisfaction. Let him define your life and redefine it. Second one, you might be a frustrated, disillusioned believer. I've been here. I wrestle with this at times. Maybe you're frustrated with a dry season where you feel like God is distant and isn't answering your prayers. Today, Jesus is reminding you that he, he is present and, and is at work. He's calling you to live in a broken world in light of his steadfast love. A feeling of the Spirit. God, this doesn't make sense, but I trust you. Because I trust that through the cross and him restitching that you're painting the portrait. And if I'm in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, I'm a part of this. And we show off the glory of Christ in every area through that. It is the Spirit who will bring satisfaction in these times, not simply a change in our circumstances. For the unbeliever, maybe you have never heard about the true crucified and risen Savior, and the Holy Spirit is calling you to come to Christ. He may be tugging at you. Lord. And your way you'll know that is you'll start wrestling your spirit. You might be wrestling your spirit right now. If you're a believer, there might be an issue of sin, and you're like, God, I don't want to let go of this. Come to him. He's gentle. He's lowly. He's meek. He knows, how to, he knows how to take you and heal you and forgive you and give you that satisfaction. For the unbeliever, you might be wrestling like, I don't know. And you know that the Holy Spirit is at work when you're like, in your soul, you can't, you can't keep still. You're wrestling like, nah, I don't want to raise my hand. No, nah, I don't want to do anything. No, nah, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't know, Lord. I'll tell you this. If you're wrestling right now, let the Spirit of God take over. Let him show you satisfaction. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. You try Jesus and you surrender and walk in discipleship, you will never regret it. Doesn't make life easy. Makes it harder at times. But you will never regret it because the Spirit of God is at work. So eyes closed, every head bowed, please. As we wrap up here, I want, for those who, uh, for those who may have never trusted Christ before in your life, and you, or maybe you grew up in church, but you're like, I don't know if I know Jesus. I mean, I've heard about him, but I don't know if I've really entrusted my life into his care. I want you with all heads back.